Hey there, you're listening to Paradigm Shift, a podcast about people building the future and pivotal moments in the journey. I'm Ashish, and I'm joined by my co-host, Zayn. And today, we're super excited to speak with James McGillicuddy. James was previously head of strategy at Carta, where he brought products like Carta X to market. And before that, he was a COO and early team member at Sourcegraph, a universal code search tool company valued at $2.6 billion. Welcome, James. Thanks for having me on the pod, guys. So I want to start at an interesting story for you, which is back to your Stanford days when you were playing uh, football. I'm sure it feels like a whole lifetime ago, but I'm just curious, like for the audience, can you talk about what were you doing with football and kind of what were some interesting learnings or experience from that time that stick with you now? Certainly. It does feel like a lifetime ago, except for every few weeks when I feel some sharp pain in my knee. So I am reminded of the physical toll that it took, but nothing but fond memories about my time on the farm and playing Stanford football. I didn't have actually the easiest path as a collegiate athlete. My freshman year, I came in, I had an injury and then had another injury and ended up being sidelined with a ruptured patella tendon my sophomore and junior year. And not to sound too arrogant here, but I was pretty highly rated coming out of high school and pretty athletic guy. So it was tough those first few years when my whole identity had been sports for much of my life to not be able to live and play that out literally. And then we had a absolute incredible leader. And I'd say maybe the fiercest, one of the fiercest competitors that I've ever seen take over as head coach. And that was Jim Harbaugh. And I think that my takeaways from my time at Stanford, and I should mention that I ended up playing my last three years. This is usually when people make jokes about me being a doctor for having been in school for six seasons, but I did get a master's out of it. But that was really incredible to kind of learn how to compete, learn how to win under Jim Harbaugh. And I think that one, learning how to take a down and out group of people that have been battered and beat down. We were one in 11 when he came in. And then within four seasons, we were 12 and one winning the Orange Bowl and ranked number four in the country. That whole time attracting incredible talent that will go on to live in the Football Hall of Fame and also the Pro Hall of Fame. Folks like Andrew Locke and Toby Gearhart and Zach Hertz, et cetera, et cetera. It was an incredible, incredible run. That's amazing. I went to school at the University of Michigan. And of course, Jim Harbaugh is like the head coach there. So I'm a huge mm. fan. Would love to dive into that a little more. What were some examples? Like, as you think back, you guys had this like bad record. I guess morale must have been low. So Jim Harbaugh signs on. And what are some things he did that think back at, okay, those are the examples of someone who's like a fierce competitor and like a great leader and so on. First and foremost, he made people believe because he believed. And so much of a winning mindset is do you actually believe in what you're doing? And that's infectious. The old saying, fake it till you make it, it actually works. If you're not feeling great, if your attitude isn't that great, but you see a guy next to you or a couple of guys that are feeling good and maybe they're faking it, you don't know. But Jim Harbaugh just truly believed that we were going to win and we were going to be great. That was one thing. And I think the other thing is that he worked with the tools and the people and the constraints that were in place when he got there. And obviously some of those things got better and some of the constraints as well, but he really figured out a way to take with what he had been given and win. And what that meant is, hey, we can get really great talented linemen, but our skill players might not be as good right now. So we're going to just beat people down and batter them down. And hey, like just so happened that we did have a great offensive line and 
defensive line, but we also had Toby Gearhart. And then Toby Gearhart leaves right over the Heisman. And everyone says, oh, we're going from eight and four. You're going to be terrible next year. Then this guy, Andrew Luck, is able to bring us to the Orange Bowl or 12 and one. So he's always found a way to take with what he had and maximize that. He is the ultimate envelope pusher and just push, push. And I've seen that in a lot of great entrepreneurs. There's some great entrepreneurs that I've worked with where you come out of a conversation with them. And during the conversation, they might say, hey, do you know anyone that's really good at X? You know, a good VP of marketing. You're like, well, let me think about it. And the great entrepreneurs and I guess great business people, maybe even probably two days later, a day later, an hour later in your inbox is, hey, Connie, I, I saw that you're connected with this VP of marketing. Can you introduce me? And they just, they just like go that like little extra step to take everything that you will give them. And Jim Harbaugh will do that out of players. And Jim Harbaugh also will get that from his staff. So he just knows how to light a fire under people. I give him a lot of credit a few years ago when he literally gutted the majority of his coaching steps. It's really hard to do. And then the next year, I think that was last season, Zane, you would know because you're a Michigan fan. They were in the playoffs. So going back to your first point, which is he just believed and that was like infectious. How did he like communicate that belief? And I'm asking because I think that's such a big part of building a team. And like you've done a lot of this building teams and we're going to talk about that. But how did Harbaugh kind of communicate that belief and have that sort of just take hold? So a couple like anecdotal stories. There was my last season, we were going up to going up to play University of Washington. And we were favored, I believe, maybe by three points. But everyone was saying, ah, Stanford's going to get upset. They're going to get beat. And we ended up beating them 41 to zero. The night before, once you get off the plane, you go to the hotel before you eat dinner and then watch team video, Harbaugh would usually give like a little bit of a talk. Not a big one that was safe for the next day, but a little one. He goes, men, it's like one thing that matters this weekend and it's beating Washington. In fact, I'm so focused on beating Washington that the only thing I brought was my playbook, my toothbrush and the clothing on my back. That's all you guys need to focus on is just beating Washington and thinking about that. He did this as well. And just the way that he spoke about his focus around Stanford football. I remember one funny story was like, men, my truck, it only knows two locations in Palo Alto. It knows my home where my wife and children are and 641 East Campus Drive. And I get in my truck and it brings me back and forth. I think it drives itself. That's all I care about is my family, faith, and football. And like you, I think that he convinced himself as well that he actually believed that. And then once he convinced himself that he did, he just did. He has like the ability for reality distortion abilities for himself, which is like pretty amazing. Those are a couple of anecdotal stories. He also, he would become the coach that the team needed him to be at that given point in time. For example, oftentimes you'd get the toughest coaching after a win because you might not have played up to what we had practiced, right? We might not have actually executed in a manner that would give us credit for the work that we had put in versus when you lose, most people think of a coach screaming and yelling after the fact, but... That's sometimes when you wouldn't get the hardest coaching. And I think about that a lot as it pertains to building teams, building companies, mentoring folks, which is at that given point in time, what does that person need? They might be riding high in their career, but they need to be brought down a little bit, or they might be doing a great job on projects, but they're getting sloppy on a piece of the project. And you have to acknowledge the great work that they're doing, but also make sure that you're protecting their flank from themselves. That's a great nugget of wisdom. Fast forwarding a bit, after Stanford, you had a, a brief stint as an investor, but then you get on this, you join the startup. And it, one of the themes we want to talk about, which I think will be really great from this episode, is like zero to one, because you've done it several times and you've like helped 
build these very significant businesses and products within significant businesses. And so your first foray with that was like Relate IQ, right? We'd love to hear a little bit about that journey. For the people unfamiliar with Relate IQ, like what is the story of the business and what types of things were you working on when you joined? Certainly. So I started my career as a quote-unquote investor. I was an associate, so I can't say that as that. I was doing much work besides the diligence and finding companies. But I'm really thankful for the time that I did spend at Summit because I learned an incredible amount of wisdom about how to look at businesses and markets and ultimately people. When I was at Summit, we were using this old antiquated CRM called Siebel Systems. And I remember just, you know, every day you just like putting stuff into Siebel, logging emails. And by logging email, copying and pasting an email from an entrepreneur, literally pasting in the system and calendar invites and everything was manual data entry. And I was fortunate to get introduced to some of the folks at Relate IQ and they started telling me about what they were building. And I started using it and I was like, holy moly, like this thing is magical. It eliminated the manual data entry associated with managing relationships. So Relate IQ was a CRM built on top of automatic data capture. And the belief was that we were going to capture all of the emails and calendar events and contacts across your organization. So Zane could see that Ashish emailed Cuddy and vice versa. And that was really powerful because it saved people a ton of time. It made sure that people weren't duplicating efforts and that if you're telling someone that you're a really important relationship, but then your colleagues reaching out to them, it looks like you're just another prospect or number. And then the long-term vision was, hey, we're building this relationship graph of all the people and all the activities and signals intelligence from all the different systems. You had 360 degree of your customers and the relationships that you have with them. That was a really attractive vision and attractive early product to Mark Benioff and the Salesforce crew. And they ultimately bought Relate IQ. Huge props to the founders at Relate IQ. They did an incredible job building that business. A number of incredible people came out of that company that have started great companies. And I think that one of the big learnings there was really focus on the, the first principles of how do you make someone's day better as it pertains to like productivity and kind of workflow applications. I can tell you like the lens at which I viewed all the businesses that I've worked at. Broadly speaking, I think most application businesses become commodities over time. Doesn't mean they can't be big businesses, but they become commodities. And with the world that we're in now, which is very heavily open APIs and the fungibility of data is building businesses that can kind of build a network or a graph of information or people. So really like IQ, because we plugged into your email and your LinkedIn and other kind of social accounts, we can start to build a graph of who you knew. And oh, we could update that graph in real time based on the strength of your relationship as determined by signals like emails, calendars, et cetera. The next jump was a source graph. Hey, there's a lot of code in the world. There's a lot of developers, but there's not enough developers. The world has to digitally transform. So we need more developers. So how do we make developers more efficient? If you think about it, you're like one of the pieces of data, like everyone loves referencing is knowledge workers spend 20% of their day looking for information. And it's less not knowledge workers, less developers. It includes developers, but the way that developers were finding code across large code bases, so open source, and then let's call it mid-market plus size companies, was through literally pulling code down from the cloud, their code host, on their local machine to then 
search in their ID. And I was like, wait a second, you're moving things from the cloud to an on-prem instance so you can understand it. And then if that piece of code lives across an organization, you don't know where else it lives. And that just, as a business person, that didn't make sense to me. I was like, the cobbler has no shoes. And when I went and I spoke with most developers who I was close with, they're like, ah, dude, it's not a big deal. Let's pull it down to my machine. My code base is small enough. All my friends that were developers were in kind of the startup ecosystem. So yeah, with 25, 30, 50 developers, like, it's not as big of a deal. But as code proliferates and as the age of the code base grows, and as you have more people that come in and out of the code base, it actually is like a huge problem. And I also just made the bet that like, this is going to continue and that SOA and whatnot and the rise of open source, et cetera, was going to exacerbate this problem. Obviously, that's been proven out. Sourcecraft has about 1.8 million developers, I think, that use the product for the five Fang, use it. I don't know if the Fang has changed lately with everything that's going on in the market. People get a tremendous amount of value from it. I, it actually made my day a few weeks ago when a buddy of mine who worked at one of their, one of the Sourcecraft customers, like he said, oh my God, I don't know how... I'm paraphrasing. I don't know how I didn't think that this was valuable a few years ago. I can't imagine life without it. And software at that point, software development, and probably still is very pre-industrialized. Yeah. You think about software development, and I'm, I'm not sure if you guys have read the book, another book, Mythical Man Month, but you don't get more output by throwing more developers a problem the way that you do with the industrialized sales motion. So we're talking about source graph, right? So you've sort of been pulled to network businesses because you see that those are the ones that have staying power and less likely to get commoditized. What was the network hypothesis with source graph? It sounds like a bunch of like enterprise customers can use it to index their code and make it searchable. Yeah, the network hypothesis for source graph was this, is that if you're writing code, there's a human that wrote that code and there's other humans that use that code and other machines that use that code. So if you understand technology at its primitive, with criminal would be machine code, human code, then, oh my God, think about what else you can understand. So for example, if you're looking at cyber insurance, like how do you underwrite cyber insurance? If you're looking at security vulnerabilities, like all of these businesses should be at the code level. And obviously there are license risk analysis tools and whatnot for vulnerability detection. But the kind of thesis was, if you want to know how all the world's technology should fit together and snap together, it's either go to the source, which is code. Yeah. And at that point in time, it really was, people thought about code at like the file and repository level, not at the primitive level. What was the business model? So early on when I joined Sourcecraft, it was pretty much two founders in the proverbial garage, Quinn Slack and Byung Liu, tremendous entrepreneurs. That was one of the, one of the big reasons why I went and worked there. And actually every time I've gone to a company, I think is my career trajectory better off starting my own company or working for this person. That's how I make the decision. And yes, Quinn is a developer, right? I wasn't going to Sourcecraft to learn how to be a developer from it. But I always think about that trade-off because I have to believe that this person is going to take me farther than I can take myself in that given amount of time. In every business I've joined, whether it was Relate IQ, Sourcecraft, or Carta, that has been the case. So when I joined Sourcecraft, I was very much a compliment to Quinn and Beyond because I had the finance background, had just built Relate IQ, which back then a $430 million exit was like, holy moly. And they trusted me and took a chance on me to help build the go-to-market motion, build kind of everything that wasn't product engineering and marketing. So early on, we, our first customer was Twitter. Wow. That's a uh, very timely. That's insane. Yeah. As a first customer. Amazing. Yes, it was our first customer. The neat thing was is that we got brought into Twitter on a hack day project. And there was a guy named Dave 
and Dave was on the, I think he's on the developer tools. Team. He has been a Google Because I, I have a Twitter uh, probably around the same time. <laughs> Dave Nikponsky. Yeah. Was our champion within Twitter. And he reached out to either Quinn or Beyond or the hello at sourcecraft.com email account and said, Hey, like I want to implement this at Twitter. And Twitter was written in Scala. I think we had like just okay support for Scala at the time because Sourcecraft understands code at a language level. So in a hack day, like we got a binary, we deployed it and had to do some configuration. But by the end of the hack day, I think it was two or three days, Zane, you would know because you obviously worked there. Sourcecraft was up and running on an instance and people were using it. And then at this point, we weren't actually open source. We went in and said, hey, like people are using it. And then more people started using it. And then we sent out a little survey and the developers loved it, especially former Googlers because they had code search at Google. And one thing about a lot of these big tech companies, like especially Google and Microsoft, is they build incredible tools for their team. And they actually don't want the rest of the world to have those tools because it means that the competition is more efficient. So people loved it. And we were able to sign a, our first deal with them was a six month deal. And then after that, they renewed for a one-year deal and have been a customer. The really interesting thing there was, I believe at the time, GitHub and Atlassian respectively had taken eight and nine years. Did you guys price it as like per seat? Or is it, I guess I'm assuming it's per seat now. How did the pricing evolve over time? Yeah. So it was per seat back then as well. You know, we had this guy, Abhishek Nayak on the show who runs an open source internal tools product called AppSmith. And it reminds me a lot of a book you guys might have helped pioneer, which is like open source product gets a bunch of adoption. And then as long as it's a big enough market, even if you can just monetize five or 10% of your companies or users, it's like a huge business. It sounds like that was basically the playbook here. Is that fair or am I missing something? Yeah. So one of the realizations from the Twitter deal and a, you know, a few other kind of early deals was if we open source this, we're going to be able to sell through developers. We're going to let them bring it in. They're going to deploy it. They're going to invite their team and that can grow within a company. And from there we can come in and say, Hey, like you need to buy this now. And early on, there was not much value for management. There wasn't reporting. Like there was a business back then called Git Prime, I believe. And Git Prime would let managers see commit history and who was doing it and kind of roll everything up with management dashboards. Quinn, to his absolute credit, was we were building a tool for developers that makes them more productive. And building a tool for developers that makes them really productive means that the app has to be incredibly snappy because you're competing against your IDE, which has no latency. So Sourcecraft was incredible snappy from day one. It took a lot of time to get it there. Quinn also believed in really invading the workflow. Anywhere where there's code, you need code intelligence. There was Chrome extensions for the code host. There were editor extensions, and then obviously the infra application. And big, you know, important part was the market segmentation was really important as well. The problem that we were solving of finding and understanding code was really helpful if you were exploring an open source project, but then the usefulness of it dropped down when you knew the code base. So it started to pick back up when you were in a mid-market plus size company, let's call it, because you were looking at code that you didn't know and you didn't know the code base. And that was a big reason why up until the last few months, Sourcegraph has always been deployed on company's own infrastructure. The cloud product just came out, which is also a contrarian approach over the past 10 years. So James, something we'd love to dig into is how you've approached like the go-to-market motion to go from one or a few early customers to like something that can predictably like get to like hundreds or thousands of customers. 
So you did that at Relate IQ and Sourcegraph. So maybe we can just talk about both of those. So at Relate IQ, how did you guys figure out like the ICP? And then what was your approach to like building like a robust go-to-market motion around it? And then how did that sort of translate to your approach at Sourcegraph? Certainly. First and foremost, at both those companies, I was working with incredible people, incredible teams at both of them, and really hand in glove with product and engineering. So that's one thing is early on, it's so important to have people out in the field, sitting down with customers, watching their workflow. Now you can obviously do that via Zoom, but I used to actually at Relate IQ take my iPad and film bugs and problems behind customers. And I'd bring it back and show it to the engineering org and the product org. I'm like, hey, this is how they're doing it. And I literally sit there and film it. I had videos. But you have to have a tremendous degree of empathy, I think, early on to listen to the customer and be not user-driven, but user-informed. That's a big part of it. Here's our vision of the world. We fix these things for you. You don't like all of them, but you like enough of it that then makes your life easier, gets us closer to our vision, and you can fuck it up. But first and foremost, specifically, you need to pick different segments of the market for your product and also different personas. So for example, with Sourcegraph, a segment of the market was what language do you use? We had support for Go and TypeScript and other languages. But for the languages that we didn't support with code intelligence, we had to be disciplined up front and say, sorry, we can't support you, but we'll come back when we do. And being really disciplined around that, the same was true with Relate IQ. Hey, sorry, we don't support Exchange 95. We only support 2008 or later because of your email permissioning. So there's so much discipline early on. You have to cast a wide net, say, okay, here's the different people and businesses that can use us. So back to Relate IQ. We know that high-touch relationship management is what we can provide today. So who does that? Commercial real estate, business development, corp debt, venture capital, private equity, et cetera, et cetera. We knew that because we didn't have the robust APIs and automation that exists today, that we couldn't be a high-velocity inside sales tool, despite saving people five, six hours a week by not having to log emails. So once you figure that out and you align that with the product roadmap, you can then take that broad view and scope it down, get 10 customers there. So 10 customers in BD, 10 customers in venture capital or private equity. You can say, okay, like I think we have product market fit and message market fit, which is also equally important in venture. So let's just go deep on venture and get a lot of business there. But then you think, oh, like venture capital and commercial real estate, those are pretty similar, right? High touch relationship management. Well, then you start working on commercial real estate and you actually find out that people love the workflow. They love they don't have to log emails, but the way that the firm works is people have to buy and manage their own applications. And oftentimes the same people on the same team don't want their colleagues knowing who their relationships are because commercial real estate is very relationship-based. So a system that shows who you're connected with and who you're emailing with could actually be detrimental to your business. So it's really about segmentation, testing the hypotheses against them, rinsing and repeating. It's not glorious. It's not sexy. But once you nail one of them, then you can kind of start scaling it. And so taking that example of the first 10 customers, how did that work at Sourcegraph? Twitter was the first customer. You had a great like proof of concept, great like anchor on the price. What did you do with that? Like who were the following nine customers and like how did you reach them? Yeah, so I'm working at the website right now. I see which is like I can talk about. Uber. Uber was one of the next big contracts. After former Googlers started a cancer detection business. There were a few other businesses that were like that. And I'd say that 
one thing that they all had in common was really Googlers. Code Surge is one of these products where once you've used it, you can't live without it, but you don't wake up out of bed and say, I need a Code Surge product. It's like a hard problem. So there's a bunch of marketing around Google Code Surge. We retained some advisors from Google and kind of went down the Google train. And then the Chrome extension was actually huge. So people would use it and it would basically take this GitHub Chrome extension and it would give you the power of your IDE when you're looking at open source code. So people would use it and then it might be a few weeks and they come back and they're looking at open source code like, oh yeah, this thing, source code, that's pretty cool. And then it's like, your little button, get on your private code and they'd click it. So it was this kind of long tail of invade their workflow. We were like just sitting there, like especially the Chrome extension and it would just come to life. And it was way better and way cheaper than the retargeting ad that you could use. But that's kind of how we got the first 10 was really excited users of our open source product that wanted to bring it in house. And those first 10 customers, not one of them was management saying, deploy this for our team. It was all, I'm a developer. I want to be more efficient and more productive at work and use it. One point that's like an interesting contrast between these two examples, between Sourcegraph and IQ is Sourcegraph was a net new category and product in a sense. You weren't really like selling against an alternative. You were just selling against nothing else or not having it. Whereas with Relate IQ, you were set, it's sort of like an established category, right? There's a lot of CRM solutions. How did you think about the ideal customer? Was it like someone who hadn't set up a CRM yet? Or was it someone who was not happy and like willing to learn the effort to switch? How did you guys like approach that? So a couple things. So first, from a branding and positioning statement, we were not a CRM. We were relationship intelligence. And I say that a little like tongue in cheek, but like we were literally like when someone say, oh, you're a CRM, we're like, no, we're not a CRM or relationship intelligence. So you kind of start training people that are even thinking about you as a CRM that like, no, we're more than a CRM. So that was one thing. The second thing is that where we were strongest was in this simple, but highly complex sales motion, which means that you have an opportunity or prospect relationship that involves many stakeholders on your side and their side. And organizing the collaboration and communication around them can be challenging. And oftentimes those types of motions don't have a CRM because to implement a CRM, it's heavy. And a managing director at a venture fund isn't going to go log an email into Salesforce or Zoho or Pipedrive or anything else. So when it really came down to the value prop, it was we automatically capture your email. That way you can save time and the rest of your team can see what you are doing. To the point where there were a couple of deals that really loved our spreadsheet in the cloud. And this is when like Google Sheets was like pretty nascent. And they just wanted to use Relate IQ as a deal tracking tool, but you needed a, an email account. You need to authenticate the email account to sign up. And if you didn't have email, it just wasn't really that valuable. So it's, it was hitting a market that didn't really have anything. And our biggest competitor to them was spreadsheets. And just by... Were there also customers that had like a Salesforce and a Relate IQ? Because you did kind of frame it as its own different category and use case, right? There were customers that would try and stand it up alongside, but it just, if you have a CRM, it means that you're using that to track opportunities and you have a process and it's just hard to do dual entry. People might say it's that they want to do it, but when it comes down to it, they don't. It sounds like you skipped the whole two years of building for seed companies and then series A and then 
Series B and then like then finally getting to Twitter, you just like had to shortcut and you were just like, oh, no, I know how to do this. Let's just skip over all this. So it's a pretty fascinating. This time, yeah. <laughs> or that's, that's a, mis- that's a no, misrepresentation. No. <laughs> Let's be very clear. There was a lot of trial and error. Yeah. What we realized was that it's great when developers are building a product for developers in many ways. Right. Like when you have Quinn Slack and Beyond Lou, they can be outside of the tedious way they they were doing things and say, this doesn't make sense. That was like, I think, a big unlock because every other developer that we that I was speaking with were like, I don't know, just fucking search around. So what I will say is that we knew that the more code, the more individuals within an org, the greater the complexity of your code base is, the more this tool mattered. So there's more pull from bigger orgs. So like we knew that, but then the question is like, well, how do you get to those bigger orgs? Like code is one of your most sensitive assets. So you just can't authenticate to a cloud service at Twitter or at any of these large customers, right? So it's like, well, then how do you get that in there? I was like, all right, well, like first it was just, you could pull down a Docker image and then we're like, well, like then like we need to work with them and do some config. And I was like, all right, let's just open source it. And the nice thing about building a product and then open sourcing the pieces that you want to open source is that you can control the parts that you want to control versus building a commercial business around a pre-existing open source project, which I think is also a little bit of a nuanced point. But yeah, there's a lot of trial and error and the market pulled it out of us and all the kudos goes to Quinn and Beyond. They've built an incredible technology and team and it was really fun working with them, kind of solving those problems. But I will say like the pattern recognition has solved 80% of the problem for 1% of the market and then go solve 80% of the problem for 2% of the market and go solve it's not a problem for 3%. And like then that's how you just kind of like layer on value for kind of customers. I love that. And honestly, like the big thing is what I have learned now with RelayIQ and Sourcegraph and building new businesses within Carta is that you just kind of have to have a hypothesis and go test against it. And if you're working from a first principle perspective of solving a pain point, you're going to figure out a way to solve the pain point. So that's actually a perfect segue because yeah. I would love to talk about Carta. We spoke to Nolan Church, who led people yeah. at Carta. I think a lot of the listeners, myself included, are familiar with Carta, have used it at some point. So I know you joined in 2018, which was like an interesting point in like the Carta journey. So we'd love to hear about like the state of affairs at Carta when you joined. And then I know you worked and you helped start Carta X. So we'd love to hear about like the founding story of that and what like the strategy behind that was. Yeah. So. The overlay I'll say as well is that every time I've joined a company, people have told me I'm like crazy. So when I went and joined Relate IQ, I left a great job behind and people like Salesforce owns that market. Like, why are you going to it? And to better fans, like Salesforce does own the market still, but it worked out well. And when we went to Sourcecraft, same thing. Like I can grab around like developers. Actually, when I started at Summit, everyone was like, don't spend any time in dev tools. It's like a small nascent market, except for that giant company named Microsoft. And... The same thing was true with Carta. People told me that, ah, Carta's overvalued. It's too late. Like, why are you going there? Because when I joined, it was post-series C. I'm valued about $300 million. But the way that I met Carta was when I was eShares. And I distinctly remember the story. And it's one of my favorite stories to tell when people ask me about Henry Ward. Is it was, I believe it was like May 15, 2015. And I know that sounds kind of OCD. But we had just closed our Series A at Sourcegraph. And I was trying to figure out what to do with this cap table thing. And I remember this thing called eShares and I went to eShares.com, whatever it was. And I emailed sales at eShares 
at like 4.45 on a Friday afternoon. And at 10 minutes later, I got an email back. Hey, James, nice to meet you. Are you free at 5.30? It's like 5.30 on a Friday. So sure, I'm free. I was, I was working. And it was Henry Ward, the co-founder and CEO, jumped on and took me through the product. And I was like, geez, like, this is awesome. Like managing a cat deal on a spreadsheet is terrible. And this is fantastic. And we ended up, there's a one call close. I tell Henry that was not because of his salesmanship. It was because of product market fit. And we ended up being a relatively an early Carta customer. And I think that I must have sent 10 to 15, maybe even 20 early stage companies their way because it just took away the administrative burden. But, and it's something that people don't talk about, but it took away the mental burden. Like when you're running a, a company, when you're running a cap table, at least I feel this way, people are ensuring that you don't mess up what could be a life-changing event for them. And that's the thing I loved about Carter early on is if someone had a question about equity, I could just send them the card. If they wanted to know what their schedule was, if they wanted to know what their strike price was, it's in your card account. And it took that burden off of me. So I knew after Sourcecraft, I wanted to go to a growth stage company. I wanted to go to a company where I could really experience a multitude of projects and work. And it led me to Carta. I actually cold reached to them and came in, talked to the team. I was brought in to build actually a business called Formations at the time, which is focused on allowing entrepreneurs to rapidly start a company and then have all the tooling pre-incorporated. So the idea would be is you're starting a company, we would actually pre-incorporate your business. So you'd show up to your law firm and say, hey, I want to incorporate like, hey, here's, you know, Carta, one, five, six, seven, eight, 10, C-Corp. We'll do a name change. Oh, and by the way, it's pre-wired with all the tools that you need from an administrative perspective to start building. So that was when I came in to start. There's many businesses within Carta. So I was pretty quickly pulled into another BU that kind of needed some help. That was our public equity plan administration business. There was a, one of our largest customers going public and we were trying to build the product and ultimately the motion to keep them as a public company. So I worked on that for a little bit. And then we found someone that was way more qualified to work on that problem than I was. And I transitioned off and was the first real member of the strategy team, which is now the strategy and biz ops team. And I worked on a bunch of zero one initiatives. So the things that I had the real pleasure of starting was the policy work. I had no idea about policy. It's super interesting. I had the opportunity to sit down with folks in Washington and see how that whole machinery works. I figured out really quickly, as interesting as it was, that I wasn't the person to run it. And we hired this incredible VP of policy, Anthony Semina, who had been running legislative affairs at the Banking Policy Institute to run policy, got the corp dev team off the ground. And then the whole time I was working on a car to X as a project. So that was probably 50% of my time, some weeks, all the way up to hundred percent of my time for weeks at a time while I was in the strategy org and helped build and recruit that team. The team that built that was a team that had public markets backgrounds, a team from IEX and they didn't really know much about these crazy cats out here in Silicon Valley and private markets. So spent a bunch of time with them back and forth from New York to the Valley, sitting down doing customer discovery, customer work to see if we could get the public markets to look more like the private markets and the private markets to look more like the public markets. And the whole notion is that the private market, I've obviously grown, that's why Carter's been successful, huge macro tailwinds, but how do you enable more liquidity for these companies that have gone from, on average, just a few years from incorporation to being public to now 10, 11, 12 years. How do you return capital to not just employees, but to investors? And if you look at structurally, funds have a 10-year fund cycle. So a lot of these investors want to get out as well. So that was a really fun, challenging problem to kind of work on. 
That's great. I guess my main follow-up would be like, how did you get it off the ground? Like, how did you start? It's such a highly regulated and multi-constituency product. What was like the first version of it? How did you ship it? There was a pre-existing tender offer business that existed. And a tender offer for folks who don't know what that is, it's typically offered by a company when they want to provide shareholders with some liquidity. And oftentimes it's used as a mechanism for employees that have been there for some time and they offer to investors that might not have gotten into primary financing rounds. So it's a pure secondaries product. So we built on the back of that, of why is this trend emerging? It's because companies are staying private for too long. And we started with a clean sheet of paper. So there are securities laws in that. Tender offer has certain regulatory requirements on how long it needs to be open for, who can participate, et cetera, et cetera. The Carta X model. And when I say Carta X, it's Carta X is the liquidity business unit and the auction in particular was something that we were building out to test and try. And we tried to mirror the dynamics that exist in the private markets of you get a term sheet from someone, you get a term sheet from someone else, then you take them off against each other. We didn't, we wanted that dynamic to be modeled in the software, but we also wanted to take care of the supply and demand challenges that come with that. So if you're an investor and you want to put $50 million to work, if no one wants to sell, then that's not good for you. But someone might want to sell 50 million at a certain price. Mm-hmm. So it was, how do you basically get the supply and demand to match up at the right place. I'd say that there was a, a lift on thinking through that. And it was a great team that kind of, we all worked together to think through this. Like I said, the team from New York that had a, an extensive kind of public markets background. And we obviously had our legal team involved. And we had a regulator. It was a big lift. Carta X is totally. an alternative trading system. How do we get off the ground? We said to convince a couple of folks that it was kind of a thing. And... We got a couple auctions done and then the pandemic hit. Things slowed down on the pure auction. Then the, I should say, recession hit. That's great. We have a couple of closeout questions we'd love to jump into. The first is, what's the most challenging or difficult feedback you've received and how have you processed it and incorporated it moving forward? Yeah, so going back to the beginning of the conversation, I've always been on Teams. And the thing that I loved about Teams is you knew exactly where you stood at any given point in time. Every Sunday after a game, you'd going to Kissinger Auditorium and 125 people sitting there watching you miss a block and get Andrew Locke or Toby Gerard or Stefan killed. And again, Cuddy, like you missed this block. Actually, sorry, never missed a block. Never mind. Must've been someone else. My buddy, Chris Marinelli. Why did this happen? And oh, like, well, you just got beat and that happened. You just get beat sometimes. And that's the same in business. But other times like, Hey, like you took the wrong technique. Or God forbid, you didn't know the playbook. That was unacceptable. You would get that feedback and literally everything was graded. So you know exactly where you stand. And there's a long-winded answer to your question. The most difficult feedback that I've received is actually the lack of feedback that leads to an outcome that I'm not excited or happy about. And the way that manifests itself is if your boss, for instance, has blindsided you with news about not getting promoted or demoted or taking something away from you. And you kind of look at them and like, we didn't ever discuss this in any of our one-on-ones or any of my performance reviews or things of that nature. Like what's going on? And that's the type of feedback that is usually the most disappointing for me. I'm a big boy. Like I said earlier, I've been watching myself get embarrassed on film in front of people, but it doesn't feel good when there's not a lead up to that. And especially when certain organizations espouse things like a meritocracy. And I generally say that this is me probably speaking for many people and across many companies, 
but that's always not a good feeling. The lack of feedback that leads to an outcome. And the second actually specific example was a mentor of mine who since passed is a Silicon Valley legend. I was involved with one of the companies I was involved with. But one time basically sat me down and said, you're being arrogant. You're not thinking like a team player. And I'm really disappointed in you. And like, it was a real gut punch because I always pride myself on being a team player. So that was difficult to hear. And that was when I was younger and in my career, but that was difficult. Yeah, understandably. So second question is around superpowers. Everyone has a set of skills that feels like play to them, but work to others. And it's something that you're kind of eerily good at and lean on day to day. Are there any superpowers that you've identified in yourself that you like to lean on? I've always, I've always loved building teams and taking those teams to hopefully always accomplish always because I'm saying forward looking and great outcomes. So I really love recruiting. I really love kind of the mentorship around that and the responsibility of that around building, managing, and leading teams. So I think that is probably one of my, one of my superpowers. That's something that I've innately always been attracted to, which is leading and being a people person. But on the institutionalization of that and like the process and management product that comes out of that is something that has come with time. And that is something that has come with being diligent in the way that I think about hiring people onto my teams, think about coaching them and ultimately understanding why they are there. When I interview folks, the first question I ask is, why are you talking to me? You're super impressive. Like, why do you want to work at company X and why do you want to work for me? Like, what do we do for you? And it's, I'm just trying to figure out someone's why. And if you can figure out someone's why, you can align their work. You can align your feedback towards where they want to be and where they want to go. And that I think is really important. It's things that people miss and it leads to kind of bad outcomes for everyone involved. And that's when employees feel like they've been overpromised, underdelivered. It's when you feel like they've overpromised and they've underdelivered. I think if you just take a little bit of time, literally in the first interview, to know what their why is, what you do for them, what the company does for them, you can get really great outcomes and you can have a really enjoyable, enjoyable, but hard time of building a business together. That's a fantastic answer. And what a great question to ask in interviews. James, this has been such a great conversation. We really enjoyed your thoughts on go-to-market, on building businesses, on building teams. And we appreciate you coming on. And I know you're working on something new. When you're able to talk about yeah, that and talk totally. about the strategy and the go-to-market and zero-to-one, all the stories, war stories from that, we'd love to have you back on. Totally. I'd love to come back on. I really enjoyed the thoughtfulness and depth of your questions and the conversation. And it is another graph network-faced enterprise business. So looking forward to coming back on in a few months. And thank you for the time as well. Sounds great. Thanks, James.